Please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 52. If you're using the Black Pew Bibles in the seats around you, Psalm 52, that can be found on page 444. And look for the large, bold print, black number 52, and we'll read verses 1 through 9 in just a minute. God shall overrule it, doubtlessly. Those are some of the introductory words from a sermon that was preached by Charles Haddon Spurgeon on Sunday morning, November 2nd, 1856. God shall overrule it, doubtlessly. Overrule what? Spurgeon is referring to a horrific catastrophe that happened two weeks prior to those words. If you don't know much about this man, Charles Spurgeon was one of the first ever what we might call megachurch pastors. The church where he pastored was large. It was a massive church building, and every week it was packed to the brim on the main floor and the upper balconies. Very regularly, they would run out of seats. And I read reports in one of his biographies that the church would fill up so quickly that they would open the doors and the windows of the church, and people were so hungry to hear the word of God that they would just stand outside, rain or shine, and listen through the windows. In light of that context, let's go back to that horrible, dreadful day, October 19th, 1856. It's a Sunday morning and Spurgeon is standing behind his pulpit preaching like he does on a typical week. At this point in time, he's 22 years old. He just got married 10 months ago. He has two twin boys parenting in a new house probably unpacked boxes, preaching to thousands of people, when up in the balcony, a prankster yells at the top of his lungs, fire! And as you'd expect, the crowds of people panicked. They started running for the doors. It created a stampede of humans, and it left dozens of people trampled in their wake. The result? Seven people died, 28 very seriously injured. If you could add insult to injury, as this story hit the news, and it hit the news, all across London, reporters were cruelly and mercilessly blaming Pastor Spurgeon. So let's go back to that line I just read for you to open the sermon. Two weeks after this event, Sunday, November 2nd, 1856, Spurgeon gets up to preach, same building, same spot where he was, where this senseless tragedy took place. And before I read to you the fuller statement he makes in that first sermon back, don't assume that Spurgeon was stoic or unaffected by these events. In fact, most biographers say this event haunted him. Depression followed. His wife, Susanna, said anguish was so deep and violent 
that reason seemed to totter. And we sometimes wondered if Spurgeon would ever preach again. Or Spurgeon himself, several years later, confessed that because of that event, looking at the Bible the following weeks made him weep. He was affected. He was devastated. But in spite of those feelings, he got up and he said the following. I almost regret this morning that I have even ventured to occupy this pulpit before you. Before I preach, I want to let you know that I feel utterly unable to preach to your prophet. I had thought that the quiet and repose of the last two weeks being removed from the effects of that terrible catastrophe would help me to come back to this same spot again and stand here to address you. But I feel somewhat of those same painful emotions which almost prostrated me before. So you will therefore excuse me this morning if I make no more further allusions to that solemn event. God shall overrule it, doubtlessly. Spurgeon continues, It may not have been so much by the malice of men as so many have asserted, but it was perhaps simple wickedness, some intention to disturb our congregation, but certainly with no thought of committing so terrible of a crime as that of the murder of those unhappy creatures, God, would you forgive those who were the instigators of such a horrible act? They have my forgiveness from the depths of my soul, and it shall not stop us as a church. We are not in the least degree daunted by this. I will preach here again, and God shall give us souls there, and Satan's empire shall tremble more than ever, so God is with us who will be against us. Spurgeon then goes on to preach from Philippians chapter 2, the gospel of Jesus Christ. This illustration of Spurgeon's faith, his example to how to respond when wicked people say things with their tongue that destroys the lives of individuals is the very context that we find ourselves in Psalm 52. And I believe that the psalm that we're about to read, together if you would have me, was written in order to give us instruction for how we should respond when the wicked appear to win. Psalm 52 was given as instruction for how a righteous person responds when the wicked appear to win. Emphasis on appear to win. So let's read this together, quite literally. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4 and in a manner of corporate reading, and based on what I believe is the literary design of this psalm, I would like you all to collectively read with me verse 5. And what I want is for that verse 5, as we read it together and fill this room with our voices, we will notice a turning point in the psalm. 1 through 4, verse 5, 6 and following. So you all just read with me collectively verse 5, and I'll read the rest. Can we do that? Let's read God's word together. To the choir master, a maskil of David, when Doag the Edomite came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots 
destruction. Like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. Selah. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. Selah. The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name for it is good in the presence of the godly. And if you're thankful for the word of the Lord, say thanks be to God when I say this is the word of the Lord. Amen. May he write its blessing on our hearts as we consider one simple big idea that I already alluded to, when the wicked appear to win. The response of the righteous is fear, laughter, trust, thanks, and waiting. When the wicked appear to win, the response of the righteous is fear, laughter, trust, thanks, and waiting. I hope it's plain to you why the big idea comes straight from the text of Scripture. That's what I believe God's Word has for us in Psalm 52. Let's take them in just two parts. Part one, when the wicked appear to win. Part two, the response of the righteous. I want you to look down at that superscription. We heard a little bit of this story already. As Kenny got up and read for us God's word in just a few minutes ago, we heard that the background to this psalm was when David was fleeing from King Saul. And Doag the Edomite told Saul, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. All right, let's set the context. In case you're unaware, David is a chosen king to replace the current king of the people of Israel. So we're going to go back in time. We're about 3,000 years ago, and there's a man who's on the throne of a nation in the Middle East, the nation of Israel, and his name is Saul. He was chosen and elected by the people, not by God. He was a horrible king, as you'll find out as we recap this story. Saul being the horrible egomaniac that he is, he does not want to be replaced. I mean, can we think back to the most previous U.S. election? Sometimes leaders don't like to give up their position, and it's just a nature of being in politics and being in charge. You'd like to be in charge. David's the king that God has chosen to replace Saul, but Saul doesn't want to be replaced. So what's he going to do? Kill David. So throughout 1 Samuel, you have David on the run. He's being pursued by Saul time and time again. And in this part of our story, the background to our psalm, Saul is chasing David and David is hiding in a land or a town called Nob, in OB. And there's a priestly family there named Ahimelech. So Israelite village, 
called Nob, David's hiding. Nobody knows that he's there, and Saul's desperate to get some help, but there's a guy who does know. His name is Doag, and he is an Edomite. Oh, he is a Edomite. He comes from the family of Edom, and Edom comes from the family of Esau, and all that to say Edomites were rivals. Edomites were foes. They were enemies to the people of Israel. And Doag takes his opportunity to go tell Saul, oh, Saul, want to know where David is? I saw David go visit Nob, and he was being helped by one of your priestly families, Ahimelech. An Israelite within your kingdom, Saul, is helping hide David. What's King Saul going to do? Well, David had already run away, so he's no longer in Nob at this point. But Saul calls and summons Ahimelech and asks him, "Uh, Excuse me? I hear a report that you're hiding David. I want him dead. I'm the king. I'm in charge. Are you going to be on my side or David's side? And Ahimelech, in so many words, says, My loyalty is to David. Well, egomaniac, crazy, evil man, Saul, he gets angry. And he wants Ahimelech dead right then and there. But nobody will kill him. Except Doag the Edomite. He not only snitched on David, he remained in the area to watch the proceedings unfold and step up to the plate when no one else would kill Ahimelech. And Ahimelech's family, and 77 more priests, and the entire village of Nob. Did you catch all of that? Snitched with his tongue, led to the destruction of an entire village. And the scriptures say in the story of 1 Samuel, he killed all men, women, and children. Brothers and sisters, We're talking about true events in the world. Think of whatever kind of church massacre you could imagine where somebody senselessly brings in a weapon and shoots around and kills people. This event is drastically worse. Even Spurgeon's story, as sad and as terrible as it is, does not compare to the events that David is referring to when the penning of Psalm 52 takes place. And David is still on the run as Psalm 52 takes place. The wicked appear to win. So how do you respond? What's David think? What's he feel? Friends, be instructed. A maskil might mean a psalm, a song of instruction. Be instructed. By the way, first and foremost... David thinks about the wicked. Look at verses 1 through 4. Now in light of the superscription context, the backstory is now set. Verse 1. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? I believe because we're in wisdom literature and we're in poetry, sarcasm is dripping off of the page. Oh, mighty man, tough guy, Doag, killing children left and right. The word mighty man is hero. Some hero you are, Doag. And then the paralleled response has tripped up and 
puzzled translators, but here's my best guess, and I think the ESV gets it right word for word. The steadfast love of God endures all the day. The essence of it, because of this rhetorical sarcasm, is you're boasting of evil? Who do you think you are in light of the love of God? Not just any love of God, the hesed, steadfast, covenant, faithful, loyal love of the God who has chosen David as the king. We're going to need to get back to this concept of hesed, loyal love, because this psalm, in terms of its literary design, the way it's written begins with a statement about the hesed love and ends. So keep that in mind, that very much David's ability to respond is situated contextually in our psalm with the love of God being proclaimed. And everything in between, I think, fits and makes sense because of that. Keep reading, though. Verse 2, does it make more sense why verses 2 through 4 say what they do? Doag, hero. Your tongue plots destruction. It's like a sharp razor. You are a worker of deceit. It's a way of saying your job is to work for deceit. This is metaphor, poetry again, yeah? Your boss, your boss is deceit and you're like a little worker for deceit. You love evil more than you love good and you love lying more than speaking what is right, Selah. You love all words that devour. And then this is the final climactic statement about Doag. Oh, deceitful tongue. He's just saying, you are a tongue. A deceitful one at that. I mean, I don't think David is showing any sense that he's unaffected, similar to Spurgeon's deep distress over the events that took place at his church. In fact, if we read more closely, we find out that David is actually deeply distressed by these things. In 1 Samuel, we're told that David says something to the effect, oh man, this is all my fault. All these people, these men, women, and children, this priestly family of 78 different priests are dead, and it's all because of me. I wonder if any of you in your own individual lives, or as you look through the corridors of time and history, you can sense that there are times where even someone innocent, like David, feels the weight and the guilt of like, oh, it must be my fault. How many times have I talked to someone that's been abused by an older person, spiritually abused, physically abused, sexually abused, and they somehow blame themselves? Spurgeon said that after his catastrophe. David saying that? But thankfully, that's not all these men said. And I do think they are guiding lights to us. There's more than just the feeling of, this is all my fault. In fact, there's our all-important verse 5 that David says. Similar to Spurgeon's declaration, oh, doubtless. David is confident that God will overrule this senseless tragedy. And so he declares in verse 5, not a petition, not a request, but a declaration. God will break you down forever. He will snatch 
and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. You will be judged. It's an interesting idea, isn't it? We gather together to rejoice in the judgment of God. That's what Kenny said to begin this worship service. And then Ryan got up and read for us from the New Testament, Revelation chapter 19. Hallelujah. For God has judged that wicked, evil prostitute and put away all evil. Hallelujah. Perhaps then, part of the response of the righteous is a joy, or we might call in our text, a laughter in the face of such wicked, heinous, boasting, self-centered, pompous ideas like finding refuge in one's own power or wealth and not refuge in the Lord. So David, confident in God's justice, confident in God's holy character, confident in God's steadfast love, declares in verse 5 that God will punish. Now let's see part 2. The response of the righteous. And if you're wondering, how does this psalm apply to me? I think if you've not already connected some dots to your own life or your own world, and how to think about senseless evil, mass shootings, etc., etc., how do we have categories? How do we pray? How do we have language? Psalm 52. Next time there's some sort of mass shooting, Psalm 52. Make that the default. I now have words and language for senseless evil and wicked behavior but notice these five takeaways this is what david does first verse six the righteous shall see and fear what does he mean by fear Well, it's not a simplistic fear. If you've ever read that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, it's not cowering fear like, oh, I'm so scared. It may include an aspect of that. I don't want to completely throw that out. But let me give you one context from the book of Exodus to help you realize that biblically, being afraid is not the same thing as the fear of the Lord. This is from Exodus chapter 20, verse 20. And the people of God had reason to be scared, to be afraid of the Lord. Moses was on the mountain of Mount Sinai. There was thunder, there was lightning, there was this mighty demonstration of God's power and might, and he has just given them the Ten Commandments. That's the context, and this is what the Lord says to the people of God. Do not fear, for God has come to test you so that the fear of him may be before you, and that you would not sin. Do not be afraid. Do not fear. God's testing you so that you would fear him. Apparently, you need better definitions than just fear equals scared. Clearly, Exodus 20 is telling you, no, no, no. Don't be afraid of me like you're scared. Reverently, in an awe-filled Humble submission, respect me so that you don't sin, and you take the words I just gave you seriously. That's at least one of the categories for fear. 
And so, as we jump back into Psalm 52, let's notice, the righteous shall see and they shall fear. The righteous shall see what? Verse 5. The righteous shall see the judgment of God on the wicked, and that will cause the righteous person to respect the Lord Almighty, his holiness, his beauty, his brilliance. There will be an awe. We, we should take this God seriously. Apply this today. When the church in 1 Corinthians 5 does judgment of church discipline, the goal is for the restoration of the brother and the holiness of the church so that the people of God, when they enact church discipline, when they enact the judgment of God through exercising their rightful authority of the keys of the kingdom, the local church here at Embassy should take note and fear. When you see God's judgment, fear the holiness of God. So brothers and sisters, death is a judgment of God. Giving people over to sin, according to Romans chapter 1, is a judgment of God. People living their lives in sinful rebellion against God and thinking that they're prospering when in fact they're destroying their lives, their family, and our society is a judgment of God. So fear, take note, pay attention. Secondly, David says in verse 6, the righteous shall laugh. Do you wonder what kind of laugh that is? We all have different laughs. I've been made fun of for my laugh. I can't do it on the spot. It's just the weird thing about laughter. Maybe you guys can do something and make me laugh, but apparently I have a very unimpressive laugh. What kind of laugh is this? Is this a laugh of jolly laughter after a stand-up comedian told a funny joke? <laughs> That's not my real laugh. Is it, is it a smug laugh? Is it a self-righteous laugh? Well, we're told. Look at verse 7. See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. Ha! Maybe like that. Are you kidding me? You're going to trust in your money? That's laughable. Interestingly, this is one of the very few places that a believer, a worshiper of God, is laughing at the wicked. Time and time again, actually, what you find in the book of Psalms is that God laughs. In fact, I've told you, when we started this sermon series in the book of Psalms, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are the introduction to the themes and ideas of the whole Psalter. And sure enough, you're going to find out that our Psalm 52 reflects both Psalm 1, a tree planted by streams of living water, and Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The Lord laughs in derision. The Lord laughs. Seriously? You really think you're going to stop the almighty creator, God, 
That's silly. One commentator put it this way, when the fear of God is active, response one, it produces and allows, response two, the righteous laugh at their enemies. And then he qualifies, this is not a laughter prompted by a sinful delight at seeing their downfall. We know from Proverbs 24, 17 that that kind of laughter would be very inappropriate for the people of God. Rather, this laughter is modeled after God's laughter of the wicked that we see all through the Psalms, Psalm 2, Psalm 37, Psalm 59. It is a holy contempt for those who dare to exert themselves against the holy God. It is a righteous laughter at the wicked who think that they can devour God's people and refuse to make God their refuge, end quote. The righteous response to the senseless, wicked win is to fear the Lord because you're confident that our God, based on his steadfast love, will judge. He will be faithful to his covenant people. Take joy, confidence, hope in knowing that God will judge the wicked and let that lead you to laugh. What hope do you have apart from Jesus Christ? That's, that's just silliness. I hope that you are thinking not just how you might respond in the face of such tragedies, but I hope you are also thinking about your own life. Is there anything that's worth laughing at because you're putting your hope in wealth? Do you look more like the wicked in this psalm or more like the righteous? Our refuge should be in God. We should trust in the abundance of our heavenly riches, not earthly ones. And we should realize that our self-centered impulse of sin will continually lead us down a path that will end with us being laughed at. So take warning. Fear the Lord. Hear his word now and realize there's a better way. And it's called trust. Fear, laughter, trust. Verse 8, but I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the hesed, steadfast love of God forever and ever. There, there's our bookends. I promised. Hopefully I didn't let you down. Our psalm begins with a, why in the world would you boast about evil? Doag, who do you think you are in light of the covenant faithful love of God. Therefore, David ends this psalm in these final verses saying, I, even in the midst of persecution, even in the midst of defeat, even in the very days of darkness, he says, I now am a green olive tree in the house of God. This is no prosperity gospel of a here and now. You're going to get wealth and health and happiness. David's running for his life. Remember the context. David's not on the throne yet. David's almost been killed. But he has confidence in the promises of God and the steadfast love of God that he trusts. He knows that this is not a one-time fleeting promise that God has made to him and his people. 
He knows that no matter how bad things get, he can trust in a constant that God has communicated from beginning to end, the Alpha and the Omega. He is faithful love, even to a sinful people. Brothers and sisters, it's one of those things. I just, as a pastor who tries to help you understand the Bible, I cannot change your heart to believe it. I'm going to tell you it, but man, do we need the Spirit of God to convince you deeply from your heart. God does, in fact, love you. He does. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. It might sound simplistic, but it's the most profound truth that day in and day out, when I meet with you all, you're struggling desperately based on your circumstances to really believe, does God love me? So read Psalm 52 and emphatically know from beginning to end, trust and hope are based on the foundation of God's loving character. Oh, I pray, almighty God, that you would pour out your spirit on the struggling sinners that are looking at last week's sin and saying, God hates me. Open their eyes to the truth of your word. Amen? That wasn't planned, but I just wanted to pray. Our point, trust. The righteous response is to trust the steadfast love of God. Steadfast love, hesed love, means covenant promises. He keeps his promises. Did you all love how firm a foundation? The way it ended? How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord? The soul on Jesus has leaned for repose. I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, I'll never, no, never forsake. He does not forsake his children, no matter how fiery the trial may be. His love is so much greater, as Spurgeon said. If Christ is for us, who can be against us? Trust him. Fourthly, thank him. Verse 9, I will thank you forever because you have done it. Done what? What's he done? This was one of the moments where I realized that when you read the Bible in its progressive, unfolding storyline, part of you kind of wonders how much greater you and I should believe these words than David did. I thank you because you have done it. Well, at this point, we don't know. Like, did Doag already get judged? Is Doag dead? Did verse 5 happen? Are we, are we playing with time in this poem? We know from the superscription this was written when David got snitched on. Things only got worse after that. What did God do? Allow senseless evil to happen? Fast forward in the story and David's great, 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 great grandson, a man named Jesus Christ, had people lie Their tongues were filled with deceit. And because of those deceitful words, he was murdered and crucified. In fact, we could say the most senseless, the most heinous catastrophe that's ever happened 
where an innocent person, the only innocent person, the sinless man, the son of God, was crucified on a cross, humiliated as he hung naked, and bore the very weight and wrath of God. That God-man, Jesus Christ, did all of that, did it, said on the cross before he died and breathed his last, it is finished. How much more should you read verse 8 and 9 in light of the gospel of Jesus? I will thank you forever because you have done it. Not just because you delivered us in the past when you defeated Pharaoh. That's a good guess as to what David's referring to. You've done it before. You're going to do it again. So I will thank you forever and ever. Brothers and sisters of Embassy Church, a new covenant Christian community, he has ultimately, climactically, finally done it. It, the it of all its, the salvation of salvations, where he is now king of king and lord of lords. So, even in the most difficult seasons of our lives or our community, if something horrible happened to the community of our church, do we have the ability on the basis of the gospel to believe that God will both punish sin Forgive the sinner and be righteous and just in the end. Yeah. Bowing before the cross of Christ, we see his hatred towards sin and his love towards sinners. We see his mercy toward those who do not deserve his grace and love. And we see his final righteous justice to be displayed that there will not be any sins that get swept under the rug. So thank him. And lastly, we fear, we laugh, we trust, we thank, we wait. I will wait for your name, for it is good in the presence of the godly. Very, very practically. In the presence of the godly, I will wait in community. I will wait with the people of God. I will wait in corporate worship. I will wait not alone. I will wait with other people around me to encourage me. How many of you just very, very practically need a brother or sister who's older than you that has gone through what you're going through and they're now in a sort of time travel kind of way telling you, I know how this ends. Our God is faithful. I've been through that. I mean, what a gift that God would so command and encourage that you and I would surround ourselves with the people of God so that we could wait. Waiting is hard, isn't it? I mean, waiting is especially hard in various circumstances. I want a baby and I can't have a child. I want a spouse, but I haven't been able to get married. I want a job because I hate my job and I want to get hired, but everybody keeps turning me away. I want, I want, I want. How about I want justice because my daughter was raped? How about I want vindication because my church had some gunmen come in and just shoot people? And you want justice now. You want vengeance now. How about that kind of waiting? That's the waiting David's talking about. I think in that scenario, we need all the more people who are sages, wise, older saints with gray hair that are saying, I've seen this. You can trust him. You can wait for him. He is good. He loves you. Don't give up on his love. You can laugh. I know it's hard, but you can laugh in the face of this evil. 
God will make it right. In the presence of the godly, wait. So brothers and sisters, the big idea, Psalm 52. I think it's helpful. I think this is useful. This is probably not people's favorite psalm. This is not a best-selling Christian book. Meditations on God's justice of evil. That's that's not going to be the next bestseller. But we need it desperately, don't we? This is why all of Scripture is useful for our correction, for our training in righteousness. And I pray that when the wicked appear to win, this psalm will be a go-to for our church and our community. And we will respond righteously with fear, with laughter, with trust, with thanks, and collectively waiting. Would you join me in prayer? Our Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we come now and we are overwhelmed with gratitude that Jesus would take our place, be our substitute. We have so often been like Doag the Edomite, pompously, proudly substituted ourselves for you and thought we could rely on our intellect, put our hopes and our refuge and our good looks our popularity, our wealth, all of these fleeting worldly pleasures and treasures. Oh God, would you convict us of our sin? Would you guide us, like Psalm 1 says, to the path of righteousness? And that we would be like an olive tree, a tree planted by streams of living water that produces a fruit in season and out of season when times are good and when times are bad. And especially give us the ability to trust and wait upon your perfect timing, your perfect justice. Let us believe with all of our hearts the words that Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And give us the ability to do exactly what Charles Spurgeon did and say, I forgive those wicked men and women. Protect us from feeling like we're any better. Give us a humility of spirit in light of your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.